0: How are we doing this morning? Good. All right. Uh, I'm happy to be here with you this morning to be opening God's Word with you again. Uh, I want to uh, just introduce our time together uh, this way by saying, first of all, that as you're looking at the law, and that's what we have been doing, it's easy to sometimes forget that these are laws that are given to people who already know God. They are not given to a people in order that they might know God, but to people who have already experienced redemption. They are are laws given to people who have already passed through the Red Sea, who have already trusted in the blood of the Lamb, who have already entered into a relationship with God. And so they are not laws that are given to people with the idea that, well, if you do all these things then uh, you'll be in relationship with God. They're given to people who already have a relationship with God. And it's easy to get confused because a lot of times I think the popular belief is that, well, in the Old Testament, uh, people had a relationship with God based on law. And so if they kept the law, then they were in right relationship with God. And if they didn't keep the law, then they weren't. That's not how it got started. People got confused about that, but the reality was the law was given to people who already had entered into a relationship with God by faith in the blood of the Lamb. And this w- these were rules and laws that were given for the establishment of a society that would honor God with whom we were already in relationship. Um, so just just for a point of clarification, just want to make sure everybody understands that. And we've been looking... At for the last several weeks at the book of the covenant the laws that God gave the people of Israel when they were encamped at Sinai and these laws are not all directly applicable to us because we are under a different covenant than they were they were under a covenant by which God established them as a theocratic nation in other words A nation directly ruled by God with himself as their great king. A nation that would have borders and a judicial system and eventually an earthly king as well. And laws that were given to operate that country that God was establishing composed of a single ethnic people group, the Jews. Now, we are part of the church of Jesus Christ, and it is a different covenant that we live under. Instead of being a single ethnicity, largely, it is multi-ethnic. Instead of being a single nation, it is multinational. And it is a family, not a country. And we have God not as king, but as father. Amen? But studying the law still has great value for us and not just because it's part of the scriptures and is therefore profitable in in every way. Uh, But it has great value for us because we get through it to know and understand some things about God himself. Because as God reveals the law to us, he is revealing his own character to us as well. So, We understand what kind of God He is and what He values and what kind of people He wants His people to become. We understand the holiness of God when we see how God instructed His people in ways that reflect His holiness in the law and in order to make them into a holy nation and to bring the peoples around them to faith in Him. And the section of the law we're looking at this week pans out you know, we've been looking at a lot of interpersonal and even uh, heart issues within people as individuals. But this section of the law pans out to relationships in society as a whole and how things are to work within the nation as a whole. Uh, God specifying what a holy nation looks like. So you got your Bibles here. We're going to be in Exodus, in Exodus chapter 22 verse 16, we're going to go all the way through chapter 23 and verse 9. Uh, And before we get into it, I want to pray for us, that the Spirit of God would lead us into His Word. So let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, uh, as we look at Your Word, we know that it comes from You, it is inspired by You, it speaks truly about You, and that You are the main character in it. Father, we also know that your word is written for our understanding and our application that our lives might be transformed and that we might live in a holy way before you, a holy God. And Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to see your law in all of its beauty, in all of its greatness, and how it reveals you in all of your majesty. And Father, we pray that we would walk in holiness before you as a result. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's look at this text together here. Uh, Exodus chapter 22, beginning in verse 16. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. And my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the overflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days you shall be with your, its mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to the poor in his lawsuit. Keep far far from false charge and do not kill the innocent and the righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Now, you may notice as you look at your outline in your bulletin there that there's not much outline, okay? Uh, This text does not outline well. Uh, It is a a kind of an assortment of laws, and it does not outline well. It does not lend itself to the great homiletical outline of three points in a prayer, all right? Uh, but what it does do is it reveals to us some things about God and about the kind of society that He wants His people to create. And I want to outline for you five things that these laws reveal about God and His people. So, uh, first, I want you to see that God's laws here reveal that God is compassionate toward those who are vulnerable And therefore, God's people are not to take advantage of those who are in a weak position. Uh, I want to look closely at the laws that deal with that. And and the first one of those is uh, verses 16 and 17. By law, every Israelite, by law, was to be a virgin until they were married. Every Israelite. Israelite men women boys girls were all to be virgins until the altar that was God's standard and by the way God's standard has not changed that is still God's expectation for his people that they would be holy and that they and that and that sexual expression is reserved uh, not for men and women but for marriage and to husbands and wives within marriage. And so so as a Christian, you can never speak of sexuality without also speaking of marriage. The two go together like peanut butter and jelly in the scriptures. They are inseparable. You do not have one without the other, according to the scriptures. But people then, as now, were sometimes... Uh, prone to disobeying God's standard. And it is still the case that sometimes a guy with a good line and smooth talk can convince a girl to go further in relationship with him than she was maybe planning or thinking. And that's the situation in view here in these verses, that it's a man who seduces a girl that he likes and that likes him. What do you do with that situation? Well, what God does is he protects the girl. And he says, if this happens, then you as a man need to be a man and you need to marry that girl because she is not yours until you do. And you're to to make that right because that girl was in a very vulnerable position. If she... um, was not a virgin and unmarried, Uh, the likelihood that she could get married was greatly diminished. And so God said, you be a man and you marry her. You take responsibility for uh, what you have done. And on top of that, you have to pay the bride price uh, for that girl. Now, we don't know exactly how this custom worked, but there are countries today where they still do this where there is a bride price that is paid. In fact, Karen was telling me on her trip to Jordan, they still do this, and what they do is the the families get together and they agree on a price to marry this girl. And then the groom's family will go down to the jewelry store and they will buy an equivalent value in gold and they will put it on the girl on her wedding day. And that serves both as a way of saying to everybody, this is how much I was valued by my groom. Look at all of the gold jewelry that I have. I mean, I don't know if it's like a Mr. T kind of a scenario (laughs) or what. But, you know, they've got all this gold, right? But it's also economic security for that girl. Because if something happened to your husband, something happened to your husband as a woman and you became a widow, it was men who held the remunerative occupations in society. And so the payment of the bride price was a way of ensuring that if something happened to your husband, this is ancient life insurance. This is a way of continuing to live life and to raise your kids with what has been paid for you. Uh, This is not the buying and selling of young girls, okay? This is a way of ensuring that these women were taken care of because they were vulnerable. They were vulnerable, and God has compassion on the vulnerable. And so he is looking out for them. And he says, now, it may come to a situation where this guy is a loser and a bum. And her dad, is his part of his job as her dad is to make sure she doesn't wind up married to a bum. And so if, he's, if her dad steps up and says, No way are you marrying that clown. Um, Guess what? He still has to pay the bride price. He still has to pay the bride price, even though he does not get to marry her. But it also serves to protect that girl because her bride price has already been paid, so it makes her easier, even though she's not a virgin anymore, for her to get married because the cost is now not as severe as it otherwise would be but protects that girl who is in a very vulnerable position. Um, God also looks after the widow and the orphan and the immigrant alien, uh, which the Scripture calls here the sojourner. If you want to look at verses uh, 21 to 24 and uh, chapter 23, verse 9 here, the Israelites are to remember that they are recipients of God's grace themselves. Uh, they were al- they were aliens for a long time in Egypt, and therefore were there to show grace and mercy to those who were aliens among them. You know the ancient world was not like our world. If you were living as a foreigner in somebody else's country, you had no rights, and they could do pretty much whatever they wanted to you. And so, aliens or foreigners living among you were were people who were ripe for exploitation. Sounds amazingly contemporary in some ways. That it's easy to exploit those without rights. And God is compassionate. And he says, you are not to be like that. If you have foreigners who live among you, it's not that they get all the same rights as Israelites, but you are not to oppress them. And you are not to exploit them. You were to care for them and look after them. And on top of that, um, you had to look after widows and orphans. As I said, in those days, if your husband died, you were in a vulnerable position as a widow. You didn't have a way of making money necessarily. You could go out and glean in the fields. uh, You could go out and, uh, and at least have some food. But it was hard. A hard life to be single, as a widow or as um, as an orphan, and to be away from any protection. It was a hard life, and God said, "You protect them as a society. You have a responsibility to look after the widow and the orphan." And He says, "Look, if you don't, if you oppress these people, and they cry out to me, I see." And I hear, and I'm compassionate on them, and I will not be compassionate on you. Uh, God also required people to help the poor. You weren't allowed to loan them money at interest. I find that really interesting. Because these people are your brothers and your sisters. And you're not allowed to loan them money at interest. Uh, And the reason for that was to keep them from falling into slavery couldn't charge him interest and in fact if a man was very poor a lot of times all he had to offer as collateral was his cloak you know uh, a man wore a couple of items of clothing you had kind of your undergarment and then you had this um robe that you wore this sleeveless like looks like a woman's flannel nightgown uh, <laughs> you know kind of this long sleeve deal that goes to your ankles kind of a thing right um And everybody wore those, and then you had a cloak that you wrapped around yourself, uh, and it was what kept you warm. If you were very poor, you used it. It doubled as a blanket. And if you were very poor, this may have been the only thing that you owned that you could use as collateral because you didn't wear it all the time. You didn't wear it to work in, but you did wear it, you know, for um, more formal occasions, and you did wear it to sleep in. And so we might think in our society, you know, well, hey, uh, if you take away a guy's blanket, you know, when he's laying there shivering at night, that'll remind him to pay me back, right? But God says no. You can keep it. You can take a guy's cloak as collateral, but you have to return it to him every night, so he has something to sleep in. And I find that really interesting because. At the same time, you know, the the poor man retains what little he has. But he's also in relationship with the guy that he owes money to. And every day he sees him. And that serves as the reminder that he might need, that he owes him money. But at the same time, he gets to keep what little he has. Because God is compassionate and merciful toward those who are vulnerable and you weren't allowed to loan them money at interest so that the guy could eventually pay it back and get out from under the the debt that he's under. So let's consider for a minute how how this group of laws apply to us. And let me just ask a question. Are you compassionate to the vulnerable? Are you compassionate to the vulnerable? You singles... Do you maintain your purity? You single men in particular, do you protect the women that you date? Or are you looking for every opportunity to take advantage of a girl who cares about you? I once had a girl when I was in high school break up with me because I would not kiss her. It broke my heart, but I slept really well because I honored God with my body. Do you protect the vulnerable? How do you treat the poor? How do you treat the poor? How do you regard them when you see them? Do you reach out to them? Do you care for them? Do you help them? Or do you think, well, they deserve it? How do you treat the single mother or the young couple who has made a mistake together? What's your attitude toward the alien, or the stranger, or the widow, or the fatherless child? Are you compassionate to the vulnerable? Does your compassion extend to your actions to them? Another thing we learn about God from these laws is that God is a just God. If you look at verse 23 and 24 and 27 here, um, in them we see that God will repay those who oppress the widow and the orphan by making their children orphans and their wives widows. He promises to hear the cry of the poor when they're mistreated by the wealthy. And we see God's justice in chapter 23 and verses 1 to 3 and 6 through 8. Look at these with me here. God says, Uh, Verses 1 to 3 deal with lawsuits. In a lawsuit, there's a temptation to um, do whatever is necessary to win. And even to pay so-called expert witnesses to offer slanted testimony on your behalf. Now, I know that never happens today. Uh, But back then, you know, they had struggles with that, right? And... Sometimes there was also a temptation to pervert justice by playing to the crowd. Where, in other words, one half of this issue is popular with a lot of people, and the other party to the suit is unpopular with a large, with a large, with a large group of people. And so we're going to side with the majority. Because that's what would make me popular. Is that justice? No. No. That's mob rule. And God condemns that. And he condemns offering slanted testimony. He says, look, uh, verses 6 through 8, you're not to side with the rich against the poor because they are rich, but neither are you, look at the text here, uh, verse, three, 20, verse chapter 23, verse 3, nor should be, you be partial to the poor man in his lawsuit. Sometimes that's a temptation too. That people go, well, this guy's a poor guy. The other guy's a deep pocket. Let's rob the deep pocket and pay the guy because after all, this fellow's got a raw deal. That is wicked. That is perverting justice. That's not justice. And God says, look, I settle accounts also and I will not acquit the wicked. And if you put the innocent to death, I will come looking for you. If you, um, if you lie in court because it benefits you or your friends, I will come looking for you. I am a God of justice. How about you and me? Do we treat people with justice? Are you fair with other people? Are you honest in what you say? it's not just talk about lawsuits, you know, is your word good? When people ask you something, do you tell them the truth? Or do you try to slant it and give testimony that is favorable to yourself and unfavorable to other people? Do you favor the weaker simply because they're weaker or the rich simply because they're rich? Or are you just you support things because they're right or because they're popular. Justice demands doing what is right regardless. Third thing here we learn from the law of God is that God is holy and he will not permit corrosive evil to persist among his people. You see in chapter 22, 18, 19, 20, you see three capital crimes that God denounces and pronounces the death penalty on people who participate in them. The first one is sorcery. And sorcery is the attempt, any attempt to use spiritual entities or spiritual power to manipulate the world in your favor. Uh, In the ancient world, this took the form of these magicians and sorcerers and so forth, and they would... Uh, literally invoke demonic power to uh, influence the outcome of events. You see this today in religions like Santeria and uh, Voodoo and Umbanda and some of these other belief systems that are out there. You also see it in things like tarot readings and the psychic hotline and this kind of thing. People who participate in that are participating in the worship of demons. They are participating in the worship of demons. And God says this is evil, it's destructive to people, and you need to flee from it, and you need to put to death anybody who participates in it. Uh, The next thing he names is uh, is bestiality. Now I know this is family church, I'll not be graphic... But here's the deal. This is, this was something that was part of ancient idolatry. If you uh, have heard the legend of the Minotaur, remember Minos bull at the center of the labyrinth and Theseus has to go in and kill this thing and whatever. That animal, that creature, resulted from the union of Minos wife and a sacred bull. And the idea was that And you see this depicted in the artwork of the ancient world, of the gods even sometimes uh, uniting with an animal. And God says it is perversion, and it is destructive, and it's evil. So anybody who participates in it is to be executed. Uh, Not just because it's connected with idolatry, but because it's a perversion of the natural order that God made. It's a capital crime. And also, there's another one here, uh, idolatry. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord is guilty of a capital crime. It says that they should be devoted to destruction. In other words, that they are to be executed before the Lord for idolatry. And... um, all these things, and there's a number of other capital crimes that are listed elsewhere in the law, but all these things are things which destroy people and therefore God condemns that the, commands that the people who practice them are to be condemned to death because they are the kinds of things that put people to death from a spiritual perspective. Now, let me consider again how this might apply to your life. Do you allow corrosive evil to persist in your life. I'm not asking if you participate in any of these three sins that are specifically named, although obviously, if you participate in any of these, you need to stop today. But what I am asking is this, is that there are a lot of lesser forms of sin that can be just as destructive as some of these. And I want to just tell you that there is an absolutely true principle uh, as it relates to sin. Uh, That persistent, unrepentant sin will not coexist with a vibrant faith in Jesus Christ. They will not coexist. One will necessarily conquer and put to death the other will happen. I guarantee it. And I can tell you all kinds of stories. I've been a pastor now 13 years. And I can tell you all kinds of stories about people that I know. Not people I've heard about. People that I know. Who allowed a foothold for sin into their life and they engaged in it over in a persistent unrepentant way over a long period of time and now they are no longer walking with Jesus i know lots and lots and lots of people like that who refer to their christianity in the past tense and it is usually because they have allowed some kind of corrosive persistent, unrepentant sin to flourish in their life. Now, on the other hand, I can also tell you the other kind of stories of people who committed heinous, persistent, unrepentant sin for a little period of time and then said, This is foolishness. This is destroying my life. This is eating my soul from the inside like that creature in the alien movie. Ooh, okay. It is consuming me. And I am tired of being eaten alive. And so I am going to go home and I'm going to repent and I'm going to put this thing to death. And you get the magnificent, glorious choice of deciding which way your life is going to go. Whether you are going to allow sin to slay your faith in Christ or whether you're going to, through faith in Christ and reliance on the Holy Spirit, slay your sin. You get a choice which it's going to be, but not forever. Because if you allow sin to persist long enough, it will eat your faith, it will eat it. And you get a choice. Put your sin to death or be put to death by your sin, one or the other. Fourth, we see that God is worthy of reverence and honor. And that's the point of chapter 22, 28 to 31. Uh, God's people were not to be slow in bringing in the required offerings of the first fruits of their crops or the firstborn of their animals, or in making the sacrifice that was required for the redemption of their sons. Their firstborn sons, they were all to bring in, just like the animals, on the eighth day after birth. And they were to circumcise their sons and offer sacrifice to redeem their life uh, so that their boy could live. Because God said, look, it was through the death of the firstborn um, that you are redeemed. And so I'm going to demand the redemption of your firstborn with a sacrifice. You bring in a lamb for your boy, and you devote him to me. He's mine. He belongs to me just like the firstborn of your animals. And you're not to be slow in doing this. It's not something you're allowed to forget about doing. Uh, and in an agricultural society like Israel was, these sacrifices of these animals, uh, both uh, to redeem their sons, as well as to for the first fruits of their crops and the firstborn of their animals, that these were real financial sacrifices that were made. There was a real cost to this, and God reminds them to bring sacrifice because sometimes people forget, and sometimes people rationalize and they start going, "Well, you know, God doesn't really need this, and you know, um, I'll just kind of wait and so forth." And, and God says, no, I am worthy of honor and reverence, so you're to sacrifice and give to me. And in fact, God's desire to be honored and revered extends even to the leadership of people he puts in place over his people. He says, look, you are not to curse either God nor those he puts in leadership over you. You're to treat them with respect just as you treat me with respect because I'm the one who gave that person his or her position of leadership. So this extends to us in the following way. First of all, God has an expectation that we're going to give and give generously, right? And that on top of that, following what the Word of God says, we're going to give off the top of what our income is, right? We don't give God what's left over. We don't say, well, let's see, uh, I paid all the bills, I got six bucks. All right. Uh, No. We honor God with the first of what comes in. And then in addition to that, um, we... Also, treat with respect those God has put in leadership over you. Now, I'm very blessed here. This is not a complaint. Okay? Don't hear it this way. But you're to treat your pastor with respect. All right? Uh, I feel that. So, again, this is not a complaint. I, I live a blessed life. But you're to treat your pastor with respect. You're to treat your elders with respect. You're to treat your president with respect. That's... Harder. Um, you're to treat your, the judges and the senators and the policemen and the representative and so forth with respect because these are the people whom God has put over us to lead us. And they hold their position because God put them there. Now, I'll assure you, I'll, I'll make you this promise that if Paul can say in Romans chapter 13, honor the king, who at this time is Nero, who is putting hundreds of Paul's fellow Christians to death in the arena. If Paul can say, honor the king, who is God's instrument to do you good, if he can say that of Nero, then we can say that of whoever rules over us. Amen. Because I'll assure you, whoever God has put in leadership over you is better than Nero. All right? And even if he is worse, God says, this is the person God has put in leadership over you. And you're to treat them with honor, not because of them, but because of me. And I put him there. Now, um, last thing here. We see that God is a reconciler of enemies. I love this. Look at the text here. uh, Chapter 23, verses 4 and 5. If you see your enemy's animal out wandering around, you couldn't just keep walking. You couldn't go, ha ha, ha ha, I'm so glad their donkey is lost. Okay, you had to catch it and bring it back to them. And if you saw their donkey broke down under a load, you couldn't have that glorious German word that describes this of Schadenfreude, right? Joy at the misfortune of your enemy, right? You couldn't do that. You couldn't say, yes, finally. Karma stinks, doesn't it, boy? You know, you couldn't say that. Why not? Because God commanded that where your enemy needed help, you had to help him. Why? Because God is in the business of reconciling enemies. Hard to be mad at somebody who is bringing you your lost donkey back, isn't it? Hard to be mad at somebody while you are helping them out of a jam. Because the very act of serving them is putting you in a position of being reconciled with them. And reestablishing those relationships. And God is a God who does this. You know how I know? Romans chapter 5. At just the right time, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, let me translate that in a different way. While we were still rebels and enemies of God, God sent Jesus Christ to make peace between you and me. Or to say it like Paul does in another place, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Reconciling the world to himself God's enemies God makes peace with you know how he makes peace It's the greatest way in the world. He gets rid of all of his enemies when he makes them his friends And God says the same thing is to be true of God's people that we are to get rid of our enemies by making them our friends We are to be just like God and reconcile one to another Now, how does this apply? I wonder. You got any enemies? You're to get rid of your enemies. By making them your friends. Because God was in Christ. Reconciling you to him. And if God is a God. Who loves enough. That he can make peace with you and me. When we were rebels and enemies. Of the living God. Then he expects nothing less of you and me, but that we would extend grace of the same kind we have been shown to those who are our enemies as well. Amen? That God is a reconciler of enemies. He brings peace between people. And where there are enemies, He makes them friends. And we're to make friends with our enemies too. Amen? All right, let's pray, and then we'll take communion. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You that You reveal Your character in the law to us. And we see Your holiness and justice and compassion and mercy and grace, amazing grace, revealed to us in the law. And Father, we confess that as sinners, we look at some of this and we go, how Am I ever going to do this? And Father, the fact is, if it's up to us and our humanness, there is no way. But thanks be to God who gives us the ability to do what is not natural to us through faith in Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Father, we do thank You for that. We thank You for Your empowerment and Your leading to do what is right, and to honor you with our lives and our interactions with other people. And Father, we thank you most of all for Jesus Christ, who through his death and resurrection reconciled us to you. And We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.